0: So we're in our series, uh, this new series starting in the spring about God's covenants. Um, And this week we're going to be looking at chapter three, the Great Rebellion. If you have your Bibles, do get them open. Um, It would be great to read them together as we hear the Bible reading in a moment. Um, But as we've heard in the first week, we heard about how we are image bearers. God has granted humankind the honour of bearing his image in the world around, representing who he is to each other and to to our beautiful world. And then last week, we were thinking about how God invites us into partnership. He doesn't just uh, order the world by himself. We don't just pray to him and he gets things done. He says that we work together in partnership. But what happens when it all goes wrong? What happens when that relationship appears to get broken? Well, that's what we're going to think about today. So do have your Bibles. Um, It's Genesis chapter three, right there at the very beginning, thinnest part, third chapter into the Bible. uh, And we're going to hear Dinah reading it for us now. Genesis chapter 3.
1: Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To the man he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword, flaming and turning, to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, oh, what a reading that is. Uh, now, many of us are in live groups and we're going into a program, program of, uh, of readings, which we're going to do over the next few weeks, uh, learning how to do the Discovery Bible course. So um, before you do anything else, if you were reading with the Bible, I'm going to ask you to close it and put it to one side. Uh, It's a great exercise to help you review what you've heard and really take it on on board and perhaps even be aware of of things you might have presumed you heard and not necessarily uh, were there. So what I'm going to do now is do a little quiz. Uh, We're saving ourselves from Kahoot this time, but uh, let's have a quiz. First question. What were the man and the woman in the garden called? Have a think. Okay, well, if you said Adam and Eve, I'm afraid it's no points. They're actually called the man and the woman. The man and the woman in the garden are called the man and the woman. Eve gets named by Adam after the fall, right at the end of the chapter, but not in the garden. And then Adam, whose name in Hebrew is Adama, named out of the earth, as we heard last week. It's a bit more tricky. Through chapter one and two, the name Adama shifts from representing humankind to the man who's married to the woman, as we've seen, and ultimately to Eve's other half, Adam. The different Bible translations vary, therefore, in kind of where they name Adam and where his name comes in as a person. And I chose NRSV because uh, actually they choose not to use his personal name until after this story in chapter four. Although if you were reading in the NIV, you'd have seen uh, he could, they give him his name as Adam in uh, verse 20 of chapter two. OK, next question. True or false, God puts the man in charge of the woman in the garden. Well, I'm afraid, again, this is, this is not so. It's sometimes what we've assumed, and, and we've had generations of assumptions over this. And if you look, she's described in chapter two as his Asa, his helper. But then in the Old Testament, it is used uh, many times for God. So uh, if we use this word asa, uh relating to God, the Lord is my help as a helper, a backup, a mainstay. A provider of vitally important acts of rescue and support I don't think we necessarily have to see that there's a position of inferiority here and then it's only after the fall that God uh, foretells that that Eve will um, Eve's husband will rule over her and it's a consequence of what happens after the fall third question true or false after the fall God drives the man and the woman out of the garden seems like an obvious question doesn't it but again look again it's false if you look in detail God drives the man out of the garden but we learn very soon at the beginning of chapter four that Eve has joined him but really we have to assume that she's chosen to join him it's very clear God said to to the man you're going to have to leave so Eve must choose to join why am I starting like this But simply to say that the fall of humankind that we just heard in that Bible reading, so well read, is such a familiar story. We've heard it told again and again in literature, in the visual arts. It's one of the best known stories in the Bible, even for people that don't have faith. And yet many of the details remain hidden in plain sight from us. And worse than that, the story has often been interpreted down through the centuries and at times even manipulated, knowingly or unknowingly. So it's almost impossible to read this with fresh eyes, free of past interpretations. Now, I'm already getting diverted from talking about the covenant story, but there is something really important here that we don't often get a chance to reflect on. So I do just want to divert for a moment. And that's to the, the, the way this passage has been interpreted about gender relationships and gender balance. So there's an inherent sort of sexism and there's a traditional interpretation, which over the years has often gone a bit like this, if I caricature it. Adam's lonely. God says, let me give you an accessory to take the loneliness off your mind. Cue his trusty assistant, Eve. She gets embroiled with a snake, takes the bait, leads the man into doing what he otherwise wouldn't have done and brings on eternal punishment on them both. Difficult childbearing for her, submission to her husband. Meanwhile, the man is forced to sweat extra hard for less gain. Thank you so much, Eve. But again, as we read this carefully, oh. the a reading reveals that life before the fall is actually characterized by several things. For sure, there is a complementarity. Man and woman are not the same, but there is mutuality. There are co equals in their relationship. In the garden before the fall, the only discernible inequality might be, again in chapter two, the suggestion that um, a man will leave his parents and cling to his wife. But presumably that is equally so for what the woman does with her husband. And as we've seen already, in response to man's isolation, God creates an Asa, a rescuer, backup, mainstay out of Adam's, old, out of Adam's own side. Over the years, it's often been implied that this indicates a second class status, a derivative. But one could look at it another way. One could argue, quite possibly, as Richard pointed out last week, how much better to be created out of human flesh rather than created out of the ground. One might say that as we've seen the culmination of God's creation culminating in humankind, which is very good, what comes next is womankind. Perhaps woman is the culmination. So there are different ways of interpreting this, and we do need to be really cautious in inferring anything too much. But let's get on with the details. The woman is approached by the snake and does indeed choose to eat the fruit because she desires the wisdom it will offer, despite the fact God has clearly prohibited it. The man himself has no dialogue with the snake, and he wants the fruit that Eve has eaten too. He wants that wisdom too. And finally, note that in the garden, the man has no authority over the woman, not until after the fall. There's no sense of a power dynamic. There's no sense of what we might call today gender roles. So the patriarchy that characterizes most societies ever since through history and certainly today um, still existing. It's it begins after the fall. Only after they eat of the fruit, does God lay out the consequences of this broken covenant. Eve is going to have to struggle with childbearing, and her desire will be for her husband, and the husband will rule over her. But this is not God's design, it's not the blueprint. And incidentally, it's interesting to see that only then, right at the end of chapter three, Adam then imposes the name Eve. It's as if he's forcing his authoritative self as a way he's done over naming the plants and animals earlier on in the story. Okay, Diversion over. I I move on now into covenant, but I I make no apologies for getting sidetracked. It's time we understood and were at ease with what this passage teaches us about God's original design for men, women and himself. There's a whole other sermon to be had here about the people who have challenged false teaching all the way through the years and the women that have had to stand up time and time again to fight for their place within God's church. Anyway, let's begin and think about covenants. I don't know if you remember last week uh, during the intercessions, Helen, who did such great prayers, uh, said this. God is a covenant keeping God who longs to reach out to us with his love, strength and help. God is a covenant keeping God who longs to reach out to us with his love, strength and help. And perhaps this is the right time to ask, what is a covenant? We rarely hear the word these days outside of the legal profession. You might know the term a deed of covenant. It's basically saying, if you fulfill these obligations, I'll fulfill mine. Now, to the Israelites, to the people of Israel, this is a well-understood concept. After years of drawing up covenants with nations that they conquered, but more commonly being conquered by their neighboring nations. And every time there would be a treaty, a covenant that was drawn up. Now, the dominant authority would create the terms and conditions. And if you abide by these, it will go well. There's basically three elements to a covenant. It's the benefits, the protection, the investment the, that the um, authority would give, and the extension maybe of trading opportunities to Israel. But then there would also be costs, the tax they'd pay, living under someone else's government and laws. So there's costs and benefits. And then thirdly, there's b- penalties. If you don't abide by the terms, there'll be negative consequences. So you've got these three things, benefits, costs and penalties. I'm not a great historian, but think about the Treaty of Versailles after World War One, as the uh, war came to a a close. Germany was allowed to continue as an economy, albeit highly restricted. Their benefits included protection, investment for a rebuilding programme, the availability of food to be circulated for a starving populace. However, the costs to Germany were also huge. Financial debts, limitations on nation statehood, limitations to their freedom. And of course, ultimately, there was a penalty to breaking those terms. So where then does covenant come into this story of the, government, of, of the Garden of Eden? I want to introduce four basic aspects which reveal something about our covenant God through the Genesis covenant. First of all, God sets the benefits. And he sets lavish benefits that we don't get a say. And this is what we've been reflecting on for the past two weeks. We're image bearers. We get to carry God's image around in our world. And also we're partners with our almighty creator who owes us nothing and yet delights in us. He calls us very good. Second thing about God's covenant ways. God's costs are there for our own good and to enhance the quality of our relationship with him. The only prohibition for the the man and the woman in the garden was eating the fruit or touching that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know the result, the deception and then the temptation and then the sudden and disastrous fall from God's grace. And God lays out the results of the broken treaty, the disastrous consequences of falling out of that initial covenant relationship. But why was the tree even there, I hear you ask? Why on earth would an all-knowing, loving creator be even thinking to place the only possible deal-breaker, slap-bang, in the middle of everything? After all, if there'd been no tree, there surely been no broken covenant, no fall from grace, no, only an eternal relationship between humankind and God. Well, here we see another aspect of God's covenantal heart. He never demands total servile submission. He never imposes utter slavery. He doesn't remove all our rights. God continually seeks a trusting two-way relationship. He allows us the dignity of choosing to go his way by offering the option to go ours. We're free to follow. We're free to walk independently, albeit with consequences for falling out. Let me give you some examples. My computer is my slave. As long as it behaves, it gets to serve me. It gets to be a computer. That's the benefit. It gets to do what it's made for. There are no costs to it. It has no choice to do otherwise. It, there is no choice. It has no relationship with me. And I have no relationship with it, apart from when I shouted it and bang it when it doesn't do what I hope it's going to do. On the other hand, my dogs, Florence and Margot get plenty of benefits of sharing our home, being fed and all that stuff. Hopefully a bit of uh, treats and things like that. But there are costs. There are boundaries of behaviour over which they don't stray. They don't run off. They don't come and go from the house as they please. They don't eat all our food when we're not. Well, they do actually a little bit if we're not careful. But they know that there are penalties also for overstepping these terms. And the result is we have relationship. We have an understanding. And they can uh, they choose to be in that relationship as, as we choose to be in relationship with them. So God's costs are for the good of us and for our relationship. Ultimately, God's desire is that we live with the freedom to choose to partner with him and the freedom to just take the risk of walking in our own ways. God grants us that freedom. Third thing, our relationship is designed to protect and preserve our working partnership. Let's quiz again. Uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, I'm going to introduce a quote from a household name and, uh, ask you to, um, ask you to use your skill and judgment to, uh, see if you know which household name said this, God sets up a world of possibilities. He puts humans at the center of his creative, sorry, I've got my, I've, I've lost my at the cre- at the center of his creative will and purposes in order that they may carry these out. That places humankind in a significant place in the story. God's purposes are contingent on how we act. If we mess up, God's creative acts come to a standstill and they need to be brought back again. And that's really the story of Scripture. Anyone got any clues? Any, any thoughts? Household name that might have said that? Well, full marks, if you guessed that was Rygate's very own Reverend Richard Wilson. Uh, that was what he said last week. Uh, And now if Richard's listening and paying attention, which I'm sure he is, uh, you're welcome to put in the YouTube uh, chat bar, whether you uh, actually guessed that yourself, Richard, and noticed your own words. I'll leave that with you, brother. The point of this wonderful quote, though, is if we mess up, God's creative acts come to a standstill. It's all about that partnership. So our relationship is designed to preserve our partnership with God. That's how God chooses to work with his image bearers, with his co-workers. It's a relationship of choice and trust. So where do you and I come to this? Oops. So where do you and I come into this? Well, over the coming weeks, we're going to see the repeated cycle of covenant making by God and covenant breaking by humans. And of course, this culminates in the ultimate Jesus covenant under which we've lived, thank God, for the last 2000 years. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus through our faith in his personal paying of the price for our sins. It's the invitation to be washed clean for all our failings and mistakes again and again. But when we look at the creation covenant, it also captures where we are today. We bear God's image. We're invited to choose to participate in God's work to redeem the earth. And yet we've been granted total freedom to walk in God's ways or in our own. We're free to stand in judgment of what is right and wrong, even judgment over almighty God himself. We're free to despise his sovereignty. We're free to critique his rulings. We're free to reject his self-sacrifice for our sakes. We're at total liberty to exercise our own knowledge of good and evil. We're free to be our own gods. But there are consequences of voluntarily walking away from your creator What happens to us when God's image bearers step out of partnership with the one in whom they were designed to be in relationship with? Insecurity, emptiness, isolation. Reaching for false gods and idols that will never satisfy. Trying to fill that aching void, aching to replace the loss of meaning and perspective in what our true calling and our true identity should be. And the fact is, folks, we've all been down that road. The fact is, at various times, we're all covenant breakers. Maybe we've never accepted Jesus' offer of forgiveness, or maybe even having accepted it, we slip up again and again. So, just to recap, we learn about God's covenant heart that He sets the benefits, God's costs are for our own good, and the quality of our relationship with Him. And also, He builds that relationship because we're designed. We're designed to work in partnership with him. He builds it to protect our relationships. But I've saved the most beautiful part of the story to the end. And if you only remember one part of the story, just remember this God pursues you to keep the relationship. You are the only one who can walk away from the covenant. God is hurt. Indeed, he's wounded by Adam and Eve's rebellion. But his first question over their taking of the fruit is not why or how. It's not why did you go against what I said or how did this happen? Who did that? Who spoke first? Who broke it first? Where's the the serpent in all this? God's first question when his people break covenant with him is always this. God continually saying again and again, return to me. I'm coming for you. I'm looking for you. Abraham, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. You don't need to make sacrifices, I'll pay the cost. Hagar, uh, Abraham's first wife in the desert who gets completely lost, she calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. Jacob in the wilderness names that place where he meets with God, Bethel, God's dwelling place. Moses finding God in the desert when he's run away. David brought to his knees when God reveals that he's done a terrible thing, but he can be forgiven. The prodigal father, that story of the prodigal son and the prodigal father, the father running, ignoring any personal shame, ignoring the shame of the son. I love the story of Peter with Jesus on the beach after the resurrection, after he's denied Jesus three times. The whole story of the Bible is one of God pursuing us again and again. If a covenant breaks, he makes another one. He says there's some way that we've got to stay in relationship. Where are you? Don't hide. I'm coming for you. God is a covenant God but he isn't just true to his word he keeps overlooking our failures and demands and demands that the relationship stays intact there's no offense too offensive there's no sin too shameful there's no failure too final God is desperate to win you back where are you why are you hiding I want you back We're about to gather at the Lord's table to do exactly this, to remember the ultimate pursuit of us. God himself saying, there's nothing else I can do but enter this world. To come as one of you, to live a life and share your experience, but ultimately to lay that all perfect life down in your sake. To create a way where we will always be in relationship, always be uh, family, always be close. God is a covenant God. And as we meet over the bread and the wine, we meet to remember that. Let's pray. Isaiah 54, 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken and my covenant of peace will never be removed. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We know we don't deserve, we come to you empty-handed. We don't deserve the love that you have poured out on humanity since the very beginning. We don't deserve the grace of your forgiving heart. There's always looking for new ways into relationship. Lord, we, we reach out in desperation for you. We reach out for that invitation of covenant relationship. Forgive us for when we slip and fall, but Lord, please protect us against any feeling, any false belief that we cannot be brought back to you through anything we've done. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much, Father God. Amen.